What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. I want you to know that uh, I, uh, I did my job last night. I represented all of you at the White House for the uh, uh, last Christmas party for the media for by President Obama. And maybe <laughs> ever? Maybe the last Christmas party ever. Uh, and it was a festive time, I have to tell you. Uh, the White House was uh, more beautiful than, than I've ever seen it. It was just spectacularly decorated this year. Every year is just incredible. And the president was in fine form last night, uh, as was the uh, first lady, and it was uh, it was it was good to see them. I, I really, I, what did you what did you say to him? I I just thanked him for for all of his hard work and his leadership for over the last eight years. Good job. Said we're really going to miss him, and said thank you for your good work, Bill. And I, okay, so, yeah, just she guys still don't get terms. a lot of time. You're going to get a lot. No, no, of no time. I understand. And I told her, which I really believe she's been. The yeah. most, the best first lady ever. You know, she's yeah. just really dynamite. Good, yeah, like her a lot. Oh, well, they so. didn't throw you out, so that's no, nice. They didn't throw me out. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, that guy that's gonna be there next year was at it yesterday, and with a with a couple of more appointments. We'll talk about the EPA appointment a little bit later. That's really really bad. But here's another one that's really really tr- troubling, and that is his nomination of General John F. Kelly as the head of Homeland Security. Now, there's nothing wrong with General Kelly. I mean, so far as I can see, he's a capable guy. I know he's, uh, he's a good leader. He's served his country well. Here's what, here's what I think the problem is. The problem is what we're seeing is the militarization under Donald Trump, the militarization of the United States government. Because this isn't the first general he's appointed. This is, in fact, the third general. Remember, we've got, well, he introduced him down in Fayetteville, North Carolina the other night, his nominee for Secretary of Defense. I'm proud to formally announce today my intention to nominate General James Mad Dog Mattis as the next Secretary of Defense. I like but, listening to that clip a lot more, knowing that he doesn't like being called Mad Dog. I do. Mad too. Dog Mattis. Yeah, I am also convinced that the only reason Donald Trump named him Secretary of Defense is because he has the nickname Mad Dog, because Donald Trump just likes saying it. <laughs> I'm a badass. I nominated Mad Dog. Right. Mad Dog Mattis. Right. So he's got General Mattis at defense, and then remember he's got General Michael Flynn, who's crazy, as his national security advisor. And now, and, and by the way, so that's three already in there. He's considering General, former David Betrayus for Secretary of State. He's considering General Michael Rogers to be the, Nas- the Director of National Intelligence. 
He's named Mike Pompeo, who is a a West Point graduate as head of the CIA, and he's named Steve Bannon, a former Navy officer, as his chief advisor. You know, you might as well turn the entire government over to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and say, okay, you guys run it. We'll have the—forget about the White House. Just have the government run out of the Pentagon. That, in effect, is what's we're doing. Now, again, I know, I know I'm going to hear it from you, veterans. I never served in the military. I was off in the seminary at the time. Um, Donald Trump didn't either. He got five college deferments. But, you know, my father was, all of my uncles served in the military. I have great respect, great love, and great admiration for the men and women who are serving today and have served in the military. This is not anti-military, what I'm saying. This is not anti-Pentagon. But I think this is troubling for a couple of reasons. Number one is um, it just doesn't reflect this country. I mean, we don't want a cabinet of all generals any more than we want a cabinet of all lawyers or all business tycoons, right? There should be people of different points of view, different lifestyles, if you will, and different talents that people bring to a president's cabinet. And again, not all just members, you know, members of the military. The other, the other reason is there is a certain military, let's face it, point of view about life. That's why they join the military. You know, uh, they have a, um, I'm not saying they're unpatriotic, by just the opposite. But they approach things a little differently than most of us do. There's a military code, for example, that says, you know, you're, you're, you're in the military. Yes, sir. Whatever you want. Uh, jump soldier? Yes, sir. How high? Right? It's that chain of command thing. You don't question what your superior says. You just do it. Well, that's not, that may be good for the military. That's not good uh, in government. That's not good in business, uh, I would add. So there's sort of that uh, military approach to life. And then also, let's when it comes to foreign policy, for sure, and m- most of these people are going to have something to do with intelligence or with Pentagon or with the military. You know, the military's first approach too often is, boom, we got all these weapons, let's use them, rather than let's take our time, let's think things through, let's not get into another war, let's not get into two or three wars at the same time, let's not jump into a war before uh, exhausting all diplomatic alternatives, and let's not jump into a war before knowing how the hell we're going to get out of there, right? So, you know what, I think this, in effect, is a military coup that we're watching. It's a military. It's a bloodless military coup. It's a military coup without one shot being fired. And it's Donald Trump, I think, who doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and so he figures, oh, well, these generals, they must be smart. They made, they they became a general. So we'll just turn the government over to them. I I think this is really really true. Nobody else is talking about it, but I'll put it out there. There are two. Damn many generals are getting jobs under Donald Trump. He's turning the entire government over to the Pentagon. So there. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Got it. So if you surround yourself with nothing but military people, everything looks to to you to have a military solution. We've come so far with diplomacy. We've seen what Barack Obama has done by talking to other countries and de-escalating worldwide crises. And when you look at who's left standing and how unstable the world is right now, you look at 
new leaders from country to country to country to country, ally to ally to ally to ally. And we should be in the business of talking to people and making some new friends because all of our old friends are leaving. Right. They're gone. No. No, it's re- it really is troubling, and I, I it's end on this point. Get your calls at 866-55-PRESS. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating. I don't think so. I think this is a real threat, a real serious concern, and should be. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut yesterday uh, told the Washington Post, quote, I'm concerned, said uh, Senator Chris Murphy. He's a member of Foreign Relations. Quote, each of these individuals may have great merit in their own right. Absolutely agree. This is not a knock on any one of them individually. Each of these individuals may have great merit in their own right, but what we've learned over the past 15 years is that when we view problems in the world through a military lens only, we make big mistakes. That's the threat. That's the concern. That's the worry. Donald Trump doesn't have a clue. Yesterday, a big day on Capitol Hill when the Senate, in a bipartisan fashion, took time out to honor uh, one of their own, a former uh, leading senator from the state of Delaware and now our vice president, Joe Biden. Uh, Everybody lining up to say a word of tribute to Joe. Well-deserved, including the man who now occupies his seat, Senator Chris Coons. And not just literally this seat in the Senate, but also a seat on the 715 Amtrak train down from Wilmington every morning. (laughs) Yep, he's continuing uh, that tradition. Uh, Mitch McConnell said some nice things about uh, Joe Biden. And uh, John, uh, John McCain had his own personal experience. Since I was the Navy's Senate liaison and used to carry your bags on overseas trips, I joked recently that I've resented it ever since. (laughs) Yeah, Joe Biden, indeed, a man who's served this country in so many capacities so well for so long. Uh, another great public servant joining us on our news line. She hasn't been around as long as Joe Biden, but serving the people of Michigan with distinction. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell joining us on our news line this morning. Congresswoman, good to catch up with you. Hey, Bill, it's good to be with you this morning. And just listening to the Joe Biden story yeah. makes my heart. He is one of the finest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth and understands what's happening in this country I think, better than almost any Democrat I know. Isn't that so true? And what you say is so important. He's not just a great public servant, but just a wonderful, wonderful human being, right? He's real. I mean, he has stayed real every day of his public service, and he understands people, and he understands their fears and their anxieties and their hopes. And I'm for Biden 2020. (laughs) All right, here we go. (laughs) Well, we all may have that chance from what he said the other day. So, Congresswoman, tell us before we get started, what the hell happened in Michigan? I know it's a big disappointment to you. How do you read it? Well, you know, Bill, I saw you a year ago and said I'm worried about Michigan Mm -hmm. because I I think people didn't understand how working men and women were feeling. And, you know, the president, Democratic Congress, saved the auto industry. We would have gone bankrupt and seen a depression in this country, but it didn't connect down to individual workers. They're scared. 
They don't. The purchasing power is less. They haven't seen an increase in their uh, take-home pay and what they can buy. I think people really don't understand what's happened with pensions and health care and kind of the manufacturing industries, the Teamsters, the Central Pension Fund. I've got a whole group of them. Their pensions are being threatened to be cut by yep. up to 70%. Mm. They don't know what they're going to live on. They're worried about trade deals that keep shipping their jobs overseas. They're worried about terrorism in their workplace and in movie theaters. They're scared, and that anxiety is in their hearts and souls. We didn't talk to it. We didn't understand it, and they didn't vote for us. So what does that say about what the Democratic Party has to do moving forward? I know what the Democratic Party has to do. I'm not sure how we're going to do it, because we've got to find a way to continue we're losing what used to be the base yes. for the Democratic Party. Yes. And we do need to be a voice for those that have nobody else to be their voice. That's very important. But we can't lose track of working men and women who are now finding that there's more empathy for them and more solutions or think that there is inside the Republican Party. We have to do a better job of talking about what we're going to do and how we're doing it and delivering for them. You know, what you say is, I, I couldn't agree more, but, the, the, you know, the difficulty is, right, as you point out, it's a Democratic Party that has always delivered on the minimum wage and on health care and on child care and on, 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 and on jobs, and the Republican Party is opposed at every step of the way, and yet they turn around and they vote for, for the Republican candidate. Well, Why? you know, that, that, that's the problem, right? It, it, let's start. I mean, this is one of the things I said to all of you when and and I look I don't just talk about the Clinton campaign not listening there isn't anybody in the media that didn't talk to me for like the last 18 months where I said quit saying Michigan's you know a done deal it's not it's competitive um, Donald Trump tapped into that trade anxiety he understood that better than almost any Democrat I, I mean I did and a few others did knew and he's he tapped into it so they don't pay attention to the fact that Donald Trump doesn't walk his talk, that he says he's not going to eat Oreo cookies, that he, that he produces the product for his businesses in China and Bangladesh and Vietnam and Slovenia, and, and they, don't, they don't see that. They think, here's a man that understands, and he's not going to let anybody hurt my job. And then what's the first thing he does? He's safe carrier. Now, there's a lot of controversy in policy circles about it, but you know what the average man and woman hears out in mid-country? Yeah. We had a president that fought to keep those jobs here. Right. That's what I want. Yeah. And now we have a president-elect who's also fighting the head of the union who's, who dares say, no, it wasn't as many jobs as Donald Trump fought. Right. Yeah. True to form. Donald Trump uh, trying to figure out what an agency represents and then appointing somebody who believes just the opposite to head that agency. We've seen that with Tom Price at HHS, with Betsy DeVos at Education, with Ben Carson at HUD, and yesterday, maybe the worst of all, with Scott Pruitt, uh, Attorney General of Oklahoma, to head the EPA. Robinson Meyer has been writing about this, following this for an, um, the nomination process, particularly when it comes to environmental issues and energy issues. For the Atlantic and joins us here in the studio. Hey, Robinson, good hey. to see you. Hey, thank you for having me. So tell us about Scott Pruitt. Oh, Scott Pruitt is Attorney General of Oklahoma. 
Um, he, he started there in 2010. He was elected in that Tea Party wave. And I think since then um, has made fighting EPA rules a centerpiece of his career in the state. So he's become one of the most frequent litigants against the EPA, including on all sorts of issues uh, that kind of other attorney generals or other other states have not touched as much. Um, the big thing is that he has been consistently suing the EPA um, about the Clean Power Plan, which is the set of regulations uh, from the Obama administration meant to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector. Um, which is really kind of the heart of Obama's climate change uh, efforts. Exactly. Yeah, it's the it's the most it, it is um, one of the two most uh, effective or, or sweeping kind of climate regulations he's put forward. Um, and it's the one that's supposed to get us under the under the pledge we've made for the Paris Agreement, which you know yeah. is a whole nother yeah. question at this point. But um, it was was part of that whole group of of rules. So Scott Pruitt started suing the EPA about the Clean Power Plan in 2014. Um, at which point the courts told him, no, you, you have to wait till it's finalized. And then it, as soon as it was finalized, he began suing with a number of other uh, state attorney generals, including Texas, um, and and succeeded in getting it blocked by the Supreme Court last February, resulting in the kind of court process, which is now ongo ongoing. Um, I think the other thing about Scott Pruitt that is uh, notable is that he has not just limited his his litigative ire his his focus on climate regulations um he has sued the epa at, he and the state of oklahoma have sued the epa for all sorts of rules that have not been in the news as much as the obama climate rules have been um and which are kind of less controversial i think um, at least in a wide sense, than the Obama climate rules. He sued to prevent a rule about mercury um, being released by coal plants into the air from taking effect. He sued to prevent um, a rule that tried to limit smog that would obscure views in national parks. So it was meant to keep... Oh, yeah. Oh man, yeah, that'll yeah. that pisses me right yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. That's you know? like a double whammy. <laughs> like, smog and... You're lucky to be in Yosemite Valley. It doesn't matter that you can't see Half Dome. Right. 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 That's exactly right. right. You know. Um, I mean, oh, my God. What do you want? You oh, want to be in the valley and see Half Dome at the same can't time? Can't have it all, I guess. No. Right. Right. Jesus. So this is, so. I mean, this is the this is the kind of Scott Pruitt plan. I think the other thing is he, he just sued to block the methane rules, which are um, meant to keep a lot of the methane that's fracked or mined. Um, the natural gas from releasing into the air. Um, and that, in some ways, that's just as important as the other Obama climate rules because methane is much, much more powerful than carbon dioxide. Um, and there's not really any regulations right now about keeping it from being released during the fracking process. Uh, okay. Do, uh, does he even believe there should be an EPA? <laughs> A good question. Um I think he, I, I think if asked, he would probably say, "Oh, you know, m maybe some." But I think that his le his litigative record would reflect that he is not altogether a fan of environmental protection. <laughs> and I mean, and he's taken a job with a guy who said he wants to get rid of the EPA. So I mean, at least it's on his radar that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. The end goal here would be to just get rid of it altogether. I How mean, much damage can he do? 
I think that is a an open question. Um, every you know the the George W. Bush administration, the Ronald Reagan administration, took office promising to cut back all these environmental regulations. Right. Um, what they discovered is that. First of all, the American public tends to like environmental regulations when you're fighting on the basis of individual ones. So when you can campaign against these rules, but then when you ask people, should there be more mercury in the air than there is now, they tend to say, no, you know, uh, yeah, mercury is yeah. a toxin. Mm-hmm. Um, I Should we protect public health? Yep. Yeah, yeah, you know, we'll probably do that. So I think yeah. I, I, what both of those White Houses discovered is that U.S. environmental laws are are pretty strong and that the courts tend to, even conservative courts, tend to read those laws which advance the, a goal of environmental protection and say, you know, you should really be held to the standard of the law which Congress has handed to you. And that, that law is supposed to protect the pub, you know, public health. Um, I think the thing here that we don't know is um, that this is a unified Republican government, that he could potentially hit court decisions and then go and get the statutes mm-hmm. changed, the laws that govern the EPA changed. Um, I think that will be unpopular. I think it'll be a fight. I think if there's still a filibuster, you know, whenever this happens, Democrats will, you know, filibuster the heck out of it. Um, I, but that is kind of the biggest question about the extent of the damage that that he can do to the EPA's long-term ability to to protect the environment. Uh, I would imagine I, uh, that he's on the record also in terms of fracking, right? He's all for it. Yeah. There, the, I mean, that's in, in some ways, I think that is um, as much a climate risk with this administration as um, anything else. That They support fracking. They support drilling. They support uh, opening a lot of the um, reserves of fuel, of oil and gas on Native American land. Um they support offshore drilling, and in some degrees, it doesn't really matter what the regulations say if we've just mined a lot more um, fossil fuels and then burned them and released them into the air. Like, it doesn't matter what the rules are. We'll still have added a, a, a lot more carbon than people were anticipating. Right. And back to coal, because clearly Donald Trump has said you know, they're going to reverse everything and any restrictions from coal. Isn't it, though, true that it's the market forces that are the that that are more responsible than anything else, more than responsible than EPA regulations for the fact that the coal industry is dying. Yes, exactly. It, it is completely um, market forces, and it is well. I would say it's market forces, and actually, the the Sierra Club has been very effective at using local activism and local groups to alert people when a new coal plant is being built about the public health risks of that coal plant, which has pretty much stopped the growth of coal because the effects of being near a coal plant are, are very bad. Um, but it is, it's all that natural gas has, it's nearly all that natural gas c- has come onto the scene, um, is much cheaper than coal, is much less polluting than coal. Um, and so, and, and it's very easy to turn a coal plant into a natural gas electricity plant. And so a lot of these utilities have just kind of permanently switched over um, because they think that will be more stable and it, it lets them evade a lot of regulatory oversight um, kind of in the long term, they think. Right. Uh, one thing we just talked with Congressman uh, Debbie Dingell about at the top of the hour, um, I don't know whether it falls under the purview of uh, EPA or not, but in terms of climate change, 
Um, another thing before the EPA rules that uh, President Obama had done were the new CAFE standards. Yes. Uh, again, a to, uh, to effort to reduce emissions um, and, uh, and greater efficiency on the part of, of uh, America's auto fleet, which the auto industry actually accepted and agreed to. Yes, exactly. The audio industry has has uh, I- accepted them when they came out. And now you hear some whining, but a lot of industries, a lot of the car industry uh, still supports them. And in fact, um, I think like the European car fleet, for instance, um, which faces a different set of regulations, like already meets all these rules. Yeah. So it's not technologically unfeasible. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, those are under the EPA. Um, so they could also be modified or rolled back. They could also be modified or rolled back. And in fact, yeah. the interesting thing about the CAFE standards is they will save just as much, they will prevent just as much greenhouse gas emissions as the Clean Power Plan. Um, it's mm. just because they happened a while ago, we don't hear about them as much, but they will over the lifetime prevent a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. They are also up, um, I think... I, I, it's it's. I mean, I think they're probably going to go go after everything. I think yeah. it would be a little harder to go after that because it's been in, in you know in force for so long, um, and there'll be there'll be a much higher kind of standard that they'll have to prove to show that these are burdensome and and or not supported by science, um, which they which largely are. So um, I, I, they are also possibly on the chopping block. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Eliza Collins joins us from USA Today, a good friend of back in the studio. Let's talk about the, this tradition, uh, the transition, rather. Uh, we saw some two appointments yesterday. Nobody's talking about Linda McMahon. What the hell does she know about the Small Business Administration, I guess, from WWF, right? WWE? What is, what is yeah, it? WWE. Not yeah. the World Wildlife Foundation. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> different. Okay, right. Wrestling. WWE, yeah. You know, uh, Trump said that she started a small, thir- I think it was like 13 people, and now it's, I mean, it is. It's the World Wrestling Empire, I think is what it stands for. Entertainment. Or, entertainment. World Wrestling But it is, it is a wrestling empire, yeah. so yeah. I'm still going to keep yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I... I didn't. I don't really follow wrestling, but she she's popped up. Oh, let's say it. <laughs> really. She, she raised. I know. I seem like it. She raised or gave six million dollars. She was a top top right. under That's the, what it comes She That's liked what it comes. Chris Christie in the beginning too, which is interesting, and was critical of Trump. But then she got on board. Top fundraiser. Ran for Senate twice. Um, obviously, did not win. And now she is the head of the Small Business Administration. Right. Okay. What's the latest skinny? On uh, Secretary of State, are we now every day the tr- search expands? 
Are we up right. to 50 candidates? It was four, 50 now it's 300. Now? <laughs> yeah. we, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the names that are st- from the beginning are still in it. Yesterday, Trump went up and he said, Mitt Romney's still in it. It's not, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's not about revenge. You know, I, I'm over it. He's still in it. It's about what's best for the country. Um, I think Giuliani's still in it. Corker, these names we've seen from the beginning. I don't know if he's just messing with us. You know, because we have people messing with them (laughs) or messing with them. You know, the Romney thing, he could seriously be considering Romney or he could be toying him along, loving that Romney went and spoke to the press after dinner and said Trump is the right person for America. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up like last spring. On the other hand, don't you think if he were going to appoint Giuliani, for example, he would have done done so because Giuliani is so close to him and went so out of his way to support him. You know, through the through the campaign with those embarrassing speeches that he gave. I think yes, if it was someone else. But Trump, I mean, everything he's done has been all over the place. He brought in Al Gore, and then he nominated a climate denier for EPA. Like, it's right, just right. there's so many. Like, Nothing makes sense, right? So yes, if it was someone serious, or you know, a lot of these times they'll leak out. Oh, we knew Ben Carson was going to be head of HUD for like yeah. two weeks. Literally ben weeks. Carson said it was offered to me. And then we didn't yeah. hear from it, you know. So we don't, I have no idea what he's thinking if it's. I mean, I get, I mean, I understand that the transition can sometimes be a little sloppy. There have been pieces that have written about, you know, Bill Clinton's transition was sort of right. a little this weird at the than... beginning, and this one's moving pretty quickly. But at the same time, there is a trajectory for it, right? Like, there should be some sort of, okay, well, this is the ideology of the president-elect, and this is how the cabinet will reflect that. Whereas, I mean, when you meet with Al Gore and then appoint the, a, a climate change denier, like yesterday you met with Barry Switzer, former football coach, like, what? I think he's enjoying being able to bring in and, and I think he's just the like, congratulations. Yeah, it's just like having people come in and kiss the ring. But, I mean, Mitt Romney multiple times parading him out in front of people, and then at the same time, you have what looks like is going to be one of his, at least one of the contenders for, contenders for his White House spokesperson saying that Mitt Romney is, you know, uh, the bane of the existence for a lot of the Trump voters. So, like, you can't figure this out. And That's the, the thing. And Gingrich came out last week with that. He said the dinner looked like a scene out of Pretty Woman. He's never seen a grown up <laughs> kiss up the way Mitt Romney has. I mean, there's clearly a lot of tension, and I just. Can't figure it out. I think Mitt Romney would go a long way to calm down some fears on both sides and then with, you know, moderate Republicans. But I have no idea. It really is like the reality show, like The Apprentice, the way it is. Well, uh, you know, the Republicans, uh, all these professional politicians, willingly or unwillingly, they just got out of the way and let a billionaire take over the party. Now some very wealthy Democrats are saying, hey, if that works for them, why not? Why shouldn't we maybe do the same thing on the Demo- for the Democratic Party? Gabe Benedetti from uh, Politico has been talking to some of them uh, and joins us uh, here to tell us all about it. Hi, Gabe. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, uh, so t- Trump has inspired these people, huh? Right? <laughs> it's something like that. I don't think they would put it like that. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but fair enough. Basically, what you're seeing is a a whole uh, spurt of on the Democratic side, billionaires or 
very, very wealthy multimillionaires, uh, if we can call them that, uh, deciding that they basically want to run for office. They want to run for governor, and we're seeing a few of them. Now, it's nothing new for you know billionaires or rich people to want to run for office. That's been happening since the dawn of the republic. But uh, in this particular case, it's interesting because we're looking at Tom Steyer, in California, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, and John Morgan in Florida. These are three of the Democratic Party's biggest donors. So these are guys that have been very politically engaged for the last X number of years, last few decades, really, in some of their cases. Uh, and they've basically decided, well, you know what? I've funded enough candidates. Why don't I try this myself? <laughs> and I'm probably smarter than they are uh, and could win where they have not. Yeah, Is I don't that wanna, part I don't, of the equation as well? I don't yeah. want to put those words into their mouth, but clearly part of the thinking is, listen, they can see what went wrong in a lot of these states. And listen, Tom Steyer's from California. They're going to have a Democratic governor. For him, it's simply a case of making it out of the primary. In Illinois, J.B. Pritzker is extremely well-known. What he's clearly seeing is if he can self-fund, if he can make it through the primary, then he has a very good chance at unseating Bruce Rauner. Uh, and in Florida, John Morgan is extremely well-known, very uh, known as for having a big personality. He's also thinking if he can make it through a somewhat crowded but not too uh, complex primary, why not be governor of Florida? Well, as you're saying, it is not unusual for a wealthy individual to run for office, sure. right? Uh, what is unusual is that they would have the political sets. I mean, they may think they know more than the politicians, sure. but they're, they're a different set of skills that got them to be millionaires or billionaires that, and different set of skills get to, got some people to be, let's say, a secretary of state or right. attorney general who might right. consider wanting to move up to be governor. Yeah, that's exactly right. What we're looking at here, of course, is that these guys all have long relationships with a lot of the political power players in their states. So in some cases, they may be able to clear the field a little bit easier than other millionaires or billionaires might be able to do. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to happen in any of these cases. But someone like J.B. Pritzker in uh, Illinois has a ton of national democratic ties. So it's very reasonable <laughs> to think that he would be able to, in a way, much more than any other rich person who wants to run in a large state, say, why don't we have some of the resources of the party come behind me early so that we don't have a whole messy primary here and we can focus our resources on unseating the Republican governor? Uh, I'm curious. So Pritzker's, is he brother of or cousin of uh, the Secretary of Commerce? He is brother of Penny Pritzker. And okay. they uh, they famously had a big break in the 2008 primary when both of them billionaires, she backed Barack Obama, he backed Hillary Clinton. Uh, it was a big drama in Chicago, but they're all buddies again now. I have to tell you, as former chair of the California Democratic Party, mm -hmm. as a former statewide candidate, so what, what, and in that job as state chair, I raised a ton of money. That was my job. Um, but I'll, and as former statewide candidate, uh, Democratic candidate in California, this is the fear of every politician that they recruit these wealthy donors, and then the wealthy donors start liking politics so much that they want to run themselves. Right. Yeah, it's sort of you create a Frankenstein. You know, <laughs> of course. Yeah, of right. course. Get right. involved. It's, Get involved. They said I can make a difference. They your, said your worst fear. <laughs> Right, that because the guy that gives you enough, uh, uh, most money, wants to take your job. Yeah. Right. 
Well, there's nothing politi- politicians love more than just being lectured to by rich people, right? Which is the job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. And I can only imagine that in a lot of these cases, some of the people who are considering running for these races have been given a lot of money by these specific people. So, yeah, it's an uncomfortable situation. And you do have people, I, I quoted some of them in the story, basically saying, this is not the model that Democrats need to be looking at right now. If you're trying to rebuild the party from the ground up, you yeah. don't just go to the rich guy who's able to run for office. You know, these guys may have the right intentions, but it doesn't necessarily send the right message nationwide. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Yes, as we've been talking most of the morning of all the appointments Donald Trump might make to his administration, the one I feared most was administrator of the EPA. And sure enough, he confirmed my worst fears. You know, he named Tom Price the enemy of Obamacare to head HHS, Betsy DeVos the enemy of public schools to head Department of Education. Now he's named Scott Pruitt, enemy of uh, the environment to head EPA. Trump's worst appointment yet. As Attorney General of Oklahoma, Pruitt's the best friend of the fossil fuel industry who has sued EPA multiple times. He's a big supporter of fracking, and like Donald Trump, he's also a climate change denier. Yeah, with Scott Pruitt at EPA, the new agenda will be oil and gas production be praised, public health and protection of the environment be damned. That's my party shot for today, folks. Have a great Thursday. Come back tomorrow. Peter here. This as a friend is of the Bill. Bill Press Show. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.